0: All of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. But in your hearts, revere Christ As Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Did you hear those words Peter just wrote? Especially verse 15. He said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Boy, I don't know about you, I hear those words and that sounds intimidating to me. I wonder how many of you by, even by show of hands this morning, how many of you were in like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts uh, growing up? Man, look at the group, this is awesome. We should go camping sometime. I was, uh, I was in Cub Scouts for like a minute and a half in the 1980s. Yeah, there you go. I was a Cub Scout long enough for my, to, to get my parents to buy the shirt, the hat, and the neckerchief. You know, I got all the, all the stuff. Long enough to build a pretty poor uh, Pinewood Derby car, as I recall. Um, long enough really just to realize this probably wasn't for me. But I was a Cub Scout long enough to hear the motto which I'm sure you know as well, which is to be what? Be prepared. And Peter, he writes to these scattered Christians around the Roman Empire. We talk about this in uh, this writing that we know of as 1 Peter, which is on page 982 this morning as we continue looking at this book. And, and we often think about him writing to the church, and we think a lot of times I think about us, like we, it, those churches must have looked like us. But honestly, he's writing to some scattered people, you know, maybe the 27 or so people that meet in a home in the, in the region of Pontus or the, you know, 18 or so sort of new Gentile believers that are getting together in homes in Cappadocia or maybe even the 48 or so believers that are getting together in different homes in the region of Galatia. And all of these people, he utters this intimidating line. He says, always be prepared. Now, that was no small task for people that were beginning to feel the heat of hostility uh, from the culture around them as it was warming up because of their faith. And I'm of the opinion that I'm afraid that that heat is warming up around us as well. To, To speak the gospel in Springfield, I think, is largely becoming strange speech. And you hear it sometimes in conversation. Somebody will say, why are you planting flowers at Blackhawk School. Your kids don't go to that school. You don't even live in this neighborhood. Why are you doing that? You know, well, because I, I believe in Jesus who said, love your neighbor. <sighs> Whew, all right, weirdo. Or someone says, you mean to tell me that you give money, you give a substantial amount of money? You, you send people to help an organization in the Dominican Republic that feeds and educates and clothes and helps children. Those aren't your kids. Those are somebody else's kids. You do that. Why do you do that? And you say, well, because Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, and he said to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, and he himself gave everything for us and and incarnated into the world for us, and so we want to follow his example. And they say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. What a waste of money. You do that. See, what we have to say today sounds like strange speech, I'm afraid, in Springfield, but but Peter doesn't back down. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And when you hear those words, or if I were to condense that into kind of a a good old-fashioned church word, if I were to condense it into evangelism, how do you feel about that? My guess is that your natural response is fear about what to say. You know, we talk about this. A lot of times fear comes to the forefront. And there are so many fears, I think, that shows up when it comes to this kind of strange speech, talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus in our society today. There's what I call the forgetful fear. You think to yourself, maybe mentally, oh, man, what am I supposed to say when this person at work is starting to ask me about this church thing? Oh, no, what am I... I can't remember what I'm supposed to say. I mean, there's stuff I should say. There's scriptures I should remember. I can't remember. Didn't we, didn't we draw on a napkin one time at church? There was something that we did there. Or, or maybe you think, yeah, I remember some drawing. It was like a cliff and a cross and a guy jumping off, which I'd kind of like to jump off a cliff right now in the middle of this conversation because I can't remember what I'm supposed to say. And there's this fear of forgetting. Or when we talk about the strange speech of evangelism, I think there's some process fear. How do we do this? Am I supposed to grab a bullhorn and go jump up on a park bench near the state capitol and shout down condemnation on sinners? Is that what I do? Should I go door to door and knock on doors and invite people to put their faith in Jesus? I mean, that was effective for a while, a long time in the United States. Is that still effective? Can I still do that? Or, man, I saw this tract that looked like a $100 bill, And, you know, you hand it to somebody, and they get it, and then they open it up, and it's not a $100 bill. Surprise! It's a gospel presentation, which sort of seems clever until, at least for me, you realize I don't know if disappointment is the tone I want to set right at the beginning of a presentation about Jesus, but maybe. How do you do it? And then I think there's the offensive fear. You know, what if I say something wrong? What if I say something offensive? What if somebody asks me a question I don't know and I can't give them a good answer and I'm trying to represent Jesus and his kingdom? I don't want to turn people off, so I guess I just won't say anything. Just keep it safe. And I imagine Peter saw similar fears dotting the landscape of the early church so he tries to I think soothe their anxieties with some words in 1 Peter 3 for instance before his command to be prepared he says this verse 13 who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good but even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed and then he quotes Isaiah 8 do not fear their threats do not be frightened our blessing in God you see diminishes our fear of other people Uh, Peter, in essence, is talking through this section about how uh, on that final judgment day, um, no one can touch you. Your inheritance with God is unaffected by all of this. In fact, he'll even quote Psalm 34 in verse 12 a little bit before, just for some more confirmation. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. God is paying attention, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And if God is on your side, then fear doesn't deserve the last word. Do not fear even when it comes to something like speaking of your faith in a hostile society. And maybe you're thinking, well, easy for Peter to say. I mean, miles and millennia ago, he's never met my spouse, my cousin, my boss. I mean, you mentioned Jesus and you're going to get a verbal beat down. How am I not supposed to be afraid in a circumstance like that? Well, a couple of things. One, tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down for his faith, so I think he knows what he's talking about. And two, he says this in verse 15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Let's take a step back for just a moment. You have fears about what to say when we talk about Jesus. And that's legitimate. What we say is important. Every believer, I think, should grasp the essentials of the faith, should learn uh, reasons why we believe in this faith in Jesus. What we say is important. Sometimes I think we like to hide behind the maxim that actions speak louder than words, which is true, but words still speak. And so we need this strange speech. And yet Peter seems to say that fear can fall by the wayside with a little heart work in your hearts. Revere Christ as Lord. To, to revere is more than just an intellectual understanding. It's more than just having the four spiritual laws memorized or the Roman road evangelism presentation memorized. That's fine. That's great. But to revere is a deep commitment to Jesus, to, to set apart Jesus as Lord of your life. And therefore, he's beyond any kind of human authority. That's what we mean when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, we say, Hallowed be your name. When we say that, what we're saying is, you know, we revere your name, we glorify your name, and also as a part of that, it means we obey you as Lord. And so Peter comes along, he says, Jesus is to be honored and revered and obeyed as Lord when he truly is your Lord and Master, when he's calling the shots in your life. Then you don't have to be afraid of what people think or say around you, especially when you're trying to speak of him. Revere. Don't fear. Man, that is so cheesy, right? That's really cheesy. But maybe it's cheesy enough it'll stick in your brain a little this week. Let me offer a, a, a few liberating truths uh, from this book called Everyday Church I've been reading that, that helped me, I think, with this reverence mindset. I've just been kind of reading and rehearsing these daily, just rolling them around and around in my mind. And maybe you could do the same this week as you think about revering Christ in your heart. Um, here are the statements. The first one is this. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. There's no place, no need for anxiety or worry about any of these things. God is great. Uh, the second one, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. I mean, if He is king of the universe, I don't have to be afraid if I'm following His instructions. Uh, The third is this, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. I don't have to go on this endless chase to try to find some meaning or some purpose. God is good. God is all that we need. And fourth, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. I if someone, if, if you're having a conversation with someone about Jesus and they say to you, you know what, I am so intrigued by this Jesus. I want to follow this Jesus you're telling me about. I want to be, be baptized and I want to become a missionary in Papua New Guinea. Wonderful. Doesn't happen very often, especially in an initial conversation, but that's wonderful. And even if you have a conversation with somebody about your faith or about Jesus and they say to you, you are a loser, you've at least planted a seed And the truth is, you do not have to control that person. You don't have to manipulate that person. You don't have to deceive that person. You do not have to sweeten the message of Jesus by adding marketing slogans to it. You know, hey, man, follow Jesus, and he'll give you anything you want. Follow Jesus, become a Christian, and you'll get a new Cadillac. No. You don't have to downplay the messy parts of the Bible. You don't have to worry about your reputation or the uh, the fear of, of people's opinion of you. You have nothing to prove to anyone. God is great and glorious and good and gracious. So in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And I think that will help you always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Fear is usually... That kind of first response when we think about speaking about Jesus or the gospel or our faith in this community these days. But there's another posture for us to consider in verse 15. We need not just to consider the fear and what to say. We, we need care in how we say it. Uh, Peter seems to indicate that what you say is simply not enough. How you give an answer speaks as loudly as the words you give. Keep reading in verse 15. 15. Now he says, of course, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. And then he says this later in the verse but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So first, we respond when people question our faith with gentleness. That's mildness is the word. It's meekness. It's the opposite of hostility. It's the opposite of raising your voice or shouting someone down. And sometimes that's challenging. When someone challenges your faith, the quick temptation is to fight fire with fire, right? Oh, you're going to poke at my faith in Jesus? Well, I'm going to push back because that's the American way. But Peter says, listen, if someone criticizes Jesus, be slow to get angry. If someone slanders your church on Facebook, respond with grace. If someone bashes your pastor publicly, well, knock them out. I mean, there are some lines we got to draw. I mean, just, you know, don't put them. No, 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 no. Be gentle. This means an unwillingness to kind of establish our own justice, to to defend ourselves in public. It commits our cause to God. It refuses to put down the other person or criticize our enemy. It seeks to be a humble explanation in tune with the attitude of Jesus, who Matthew once said, this Jesus who is gentle and humble in heart. Uh, Jesus, who Matthew again would say, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Be like Jesus, gentle and kind in how you talk about him, even in a hostile culture. And Peter writes, be respectful. I mean, if you truly fear God, then it only makes sense to treat people, even those who may be questioning or attacking your faith, to treat them with dignity as image bearers of God. Las- lashing out at people, cussing out people, holding out on people just gives you out of their life. And God doesn't want you out of the lives of unbelievers. He wants you in their lives, praying for them and challenging them and conversing with them and offering mercy to them. God doesn't want you out. He wants you in, just like Jesus who was not content to be out of our lives, but he took on flesh. He incarnated and he became human and he was one of us suffering and dying to draw us back to God, to be in God's family. In fact, Peter will mention that in verse 18. Christ, he said, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. How you speak is crucial to this strange speech of the gospel we tell. Always be prepared, he says, to give an answer, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. I think of that fantastic couple in the New Testament, that missionary couple named uh, Priscilla and Aquila. You remember them? A married couple, they were craftsmen in the first century world, they crafted tents. And worked with the Apostle Paul and some of that business. And no doubt he shared with them the way of Jesus in the midst of that. And, and at one point, uh, their paths diverged, and yet they continued to speak this strange speech of the gospel wherever they went. And one time, they met a Jewish fellow named Apollos in Acts chapter 18. And uh, it says of him that he was a, a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, it says. Now, now what do you do if you're Priscilla and Aquila? Here is this, this man, and he is speaking boldly in the synagogue, and he's, he's brilliant, and he's persuasive, and he's wrong. What do you do? Do you stand up and shout him down in the assembly? Do you you preach truth at him like, like a bully pulpit and tell him he's wrong? Do you get on Facebook the next day and criticize him? What do you do? Here's what they did. Verse 24, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more... Adequately, they did it privately, they did it intimately, they did it conversationally. This strange speech that we talk about, this evangelism we talk about, needs something to say and a Christ-like way to say it. So, how do we develop into those kinds of speakers? I think it requires a strange preparation. How can we cultivate this strange speech? If someone asks about our faith or even attacks our faith, it's imperative to give a defense and to set the right tone, but honestly, it's the life behind the answer and the tone that strikes the loudest chord in the lives of people. Because learning new information about the life of Jesus, that's important. Man, that's important. Study your Bible. Get in a group with other people and grow in your faith. Take a class. Listen to the preacher. Sometimes, at least. You know, once in a while. That's important. But here is the hidden side of evangelism preparation. I think verse 8 sets the stage for all this discussion in 1 Peter 3. Here's what he says. He says, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing." Well, let's be honest, just in our culture today, I I think it's easy in our unfiltered world just to say whatever is on your mind, even if what is on your mind in our culture is, is filthy, is stupid, is deceptive, or unhelpful. That seems to be normal in our culture these days. Now, there's so much of speech that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally, I mean, Sometimes there's even things that I say that I don't, I think to myself, why am I saying that? You know, the strange speech that's all around us these days, uh, I'm always taken aback whenever I hear somebody, for instance, say, I'm speechless. But you just said that you're speechless. I don't understand how that works. It's strange to me. Or uh, when somebody's trying to be hopeful in your life and they'll say this phrase, it's always darkest just before the dawn. Well, oh, man, I appreciate that sentiment, but no, it is not. You need to get up before the sun sometimes. It's darkest in the middle of the night, you know, when you're on the other side of the earth from where the sun actually is. When it's like right before dawn, it's kind of bright. Out. I mean, it kind of gets light outside. It's not, I mean, okay, Whatever. I really don't get it when someone, again, trying to be helpful, says, and you can finish the phrase for me, when life hands you lemons, make... When life hands you lemons, the best you can do is lemon juice, which is bitter and horrible. Life has to give you a whole lot of sugar to make lemonade, doesn't it? Which kind of defeats the purpose of the phrase. Or, of course, my favorite. My favorite is when somebody says... No offense, but, oh, oh, man, you know when you hear that phrase that the next thing coming is an insult or unwanted advice, right? Prepare to be disrespected. That's what that phrase means. No offense, but you're an idiot. Oh, good thing you said no offense because I might have taken offense to that. No, I'm good. Uh, You know, I don't get some of the things that we say, but these are sort of normal in our world. But what's not normal, what is strange speech in Springfield, Peter maps it out here, verses 8 and 9. He offers these five uh, participles. They're arranged artfully here. There's some uh, some artwork here. The first and the fifth, the first and last, speak of how one thinks. So for instance, he says, be like-minded. That's the first one. And then he says, be humble. That's the last one. Uh, to be like-minded literally means to be united in spirit. It's to uh, cultivate thoughts that follow along the same path. It's harmony. And he says, again, to those scattered Christians around uh, the, the ancient world, uh, this, is, this is not something that's imposed by a heavy-handed doctrine like everybody get on board. This is the, the set of beliefs we're going to have. It's more about mercy-laden dialogue. It is to say we have one common Lord, Jesus, and everything else in our faith is in, is in conversation. Be like-minded. Be hum- humble, he says, in your thinking. I, I love the definition by C.S. Lewis, um, famous now, I suppose, about humility. He says, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is not the, you know, humility is not walking around thinking I'm no good. It's not the Eeyore attitude, you know. It's, it's not that. It's a willingness to take the lower place, to serve others, to put other people ahead of yourself. That's the first and last, how you think. And then the second and the fourth commands here in verses 8 and 9 speak of how one feels. To be sympathetic, he says, to be compassionate. Sympathy means to enter into and experience the feelings of other people. It is to walk in someone else's shoes. As Paul puts it, it is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And then to be compassionate shows that that our caring is not simply about understanding other people's feelings, it's about engaging in their feelings and in their suffering. We get emotionally engaged with each other as Christians. And then in the middle of that list, right in the middle, is this most important phrase. Love one another. That was the central command of Jesus' life. It was the command Jesus said that the world will know you are my disciples. The world will know of your Christian faith if you love one another, if you love your brothers and sisters in Jesus. And Peter puts it right in the middle of his list. Now, you've heard the list. This is how you prepare yourself to give an answer. This is how you develop this strange speech of evangelism with time, even in a hostile world. You live in this church family with love for each other. And if you love each other in this room, and if you practice speaking of Jesus and His Word with each other in this room, then you will naturally grow to become more powerful and persuasive and to speak of Jesus fearlessly with others outside of this room. Your hostile, atheistic co-worker, your antagonistic college professor, your smart-mouthed teenager, so practice with these people. Prepare in this place. And then participate in public dialogue. Tell Springfield what sounds strange to its ears. Tell them Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. We ask you, Father, for your Spirit's work in our hearts and in our lives. It can be a scary thing, Father, to speak the name of Jesus uh, in the midst of some who have so many misconceptions about Jesus or Christianity or our faith. But we, help, uh, we ask for your help to be bold and to be prepared and to do this with love, with gentleness and respect. Father, we long to see your kingdom come. We long to see people come to know Jesus. And we pray that you'd help prepare us to be that kind of people, that your spirit would move in our hearts and in the lives of people we're in relationship with to see again and again people experience salvation life here and now and forevermore. We give you our praise in that, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every week here at Southside, we um, have an opportunity through a meal, a symbolic meal, to, in essence, declare through the symbolic meal the, the death of our Savior and His resurrection to new life. We proclaim that death until He comes through communion. And so through some symbolic pieces, a small bit of bread and a little bit of juice, we remember His body broken for us and His blood spilled for us. Today we wanted to do that a little differently, to, to practice our strange speech of evangelism among ourselves, and so here's what I'm going to invite you to do in just a moment. Um, if you're able, we invite you to come forward. We'll have the communion elements at a few different tables to grab a couple of the, or the stacked cups, I guess I should say, and having done that, uh, we also have a couple of microphones up here. And if you can make your way to those microphones and feel comfortable, we invite you just simply to say this simple phrase as a way to practice our strange speech together, invite you to say, Jesus is Lord. And then to take those elements back to your seat, and if you'll hold on to those until everyone is served, we'll come back together and um, we'll take the symbolic meal, proclaiming again the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, if you're not able to, uh, to come forward this morning, we'll have some folks kind of walking around with elements. If you'll kind of get their attention, be happy to bring those to you. I want you to participate as well. If you're visiting with us this morning and this weirds you out, you can just stay put. That's fine, too. Uh, we just want to, as a, as a community, uh, proclaim what we know to be true, and that is that Jesus is Lord. Well, let me say a quick prayer, and then I'll invite you to come forward. Um, Lord Jesus, we want to proclaim you in this moment. Through this meal and through our words of our testimony, I pray that again and again we would hear the truth and that we, that would prepare us to be your people in this world. Jesus, you are Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.